Well, good afternoon again. I'm looking out and I'm seeing Travis laughing. He's a little more relaxed this week. I don't know why. We're glad to have you here to be gathering in this place to, to worship. Once in a while it kind of hits me when I think that this building was, was built 106 years ago. From the day it was built, there have been believers meeting here and singing worship to the Lord. And, and to think how a whole generation of people living in Manhattan uh, have met in this building to worship the Lord. And here we are doing the same thing this afternoon. And I love it. One of the nice things about standing up here is I get to hear all your voices when you're singing. And it's, it's beautiful. I sing loud so I don't hear my own. So, if you got your Bibles with you, we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 we'll be looking at today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got it also printed in the bulletin, so you can follow along that way. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One of the things that Paul loves to do in his letters is to connect different aspects of them together using this term, therefore. Uh, four times in chapter 2 of Philippians he does it. and Anytime we see this word, therefore, it, it means that everything after this word is a, is a natural response or a natural result of everything that has come before that, or at least a section right before that word. And he, he does it once again in our text today. And in this case, he's trying to tie our text today to, to what we've just learned about Christ our Savior over the last two weeks. If you remember, we saw that the Christ has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and yet he laid down his exalted position and was born a man. In the incarnation, the, the King of Kings comes, becomes a servant, a, a servant who dies on a shameful cross. And then rising back to life, God the Father gives Jesus the greatest name of all. In a place of such honor, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then our text tells us, as a result of who Christ is, let's continue to obey. Let's work out our salvation. And we're going to look at what all that means. But I want you to notice right from the start that Paul refers here to them as my beloved. That means he cares for them, for their good, for their growth, for their joy. He wants to see them prosper, not control them. And I point this out because too often we view any call to obedience as a desire to control people rather than a desire to help people. A call to obedience with wrong motives or with a wrong object stems from love of self. But a call to obedience with right motives and Christ as its object stems from a love for God and a love for others. And, and that's what we have here with Paul. That's the kind of call to obedience we're seeing with him. He even praises them, praises their willingness to obey Christ in the, in the past. He says in our text, as you have always obeyed. That's encouragement. He's not writing to condemn them for failure, but to encourage continued success in this way. He then looks to the present. And he looks to the future in the next section, where there he says, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, Paul is this father figure to them. They respect him. They're partners in ministry with him. And if you remember, in, in chapter 1, we learned that, 
that Paul doesn't know if he's going to be alive much longer. He has no idea how this imprisonment's going to turn out. And, and his hope is that they will continue to follow the Lord obediently even long after he's gone. So much that what we see here is a lot like parenting. In parenting, you, you teach your child right from wrong. You teach them that, that God desires them to be loving to others, to consider others as more important than, than themselves. And, and that's easy for a child to do when you're sitting in the room looking at them. But what really we want to see as, as parents is that moment when, when you look out the window into the backyard or when you're walking by a room and, and they have no idea you're there and you're hearing them and still they're obeying and still they're loving others and still they're considering others as more important. That is what is so encouraging in that regard. Now I want us to look at the end of verse 12. This strange sounding phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those texts that we either write off completely or it makes us a little uncomfortable. Because we prefer not to see the word work and salvation in the same sentence, ever. Now, keep in mind that the same person who wrote this text today also wrote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It seems clear from that text that salvation is by faith and not by works. Yet, I don't want to write off our text so fast. So let's be honest with this text. Let's understand what God is revealing to us in this text. And not just carelessly skip over it because we theologically know better. So let's first consider the word salvation. In the New Testament, this word salvation carries two meanings. The first meaning of salvation is deliverance from danger such as being saved from your enemies or a dangerous animal or any threat of death to your life. And the second meaning of salvation is forgiveness of our sin. That brings about eternal redemption. How's the word salvation used in our text? Is it deliverance from an enemy or is it eternal forgiveness from sin? Well, there's no enemy in view there. So it can't be that. This means that the term salvation in our text means the eternal forgiveness from our sins. So to flesh this out a little more, our text could read, work out your own eternal forgiveness from sin with fear and trembling. That doesn't fix our concern, does it? That sounds a lot like Paul is saying, get to work and earn your salvation. But that's not what Paul teaches, is it? It's not what the Word of God teaches. And in Romans, Paul points to Abraham. You need to know that for the Jews, Abraham was thought of someone who was the most righteous, super holy, if you will. If anyone could earn their salvation, it was Abraham. And yet in Romans, Paul is speaking of Abraham's believing God. And as a result of that belief being counted as righteous. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The point is, Abraham did not earn his salvation. It came as a result of God-given faith to believe God. Later in Romans eleven six, Paul's making the point that our salvation is received by grace. There he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's kind of the point of grace. You did nothing to earn God's forgiveness. The moment you do anything to earn it, 
Even something little like being smart enough or, or holy enough to have chosen God on your own volition, you've earned it. And that's not what we've done. And it's important that we as Christians really understand this, that, that you really know in your heart of hearts that the only thing that you have earned was condemnation. That the only thing you really deserve, we really deserve, is hell. And that's what makes this grace of God so amazing. It really is grace. Further evidence that we're not being called to earn our salvation in this text is what we see in Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4 is just a couple pages back. Go ahead and turn if you've got your Bible. I want you to see this. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Beginning in verse 3, actually. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now hear this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you hear that? Your salvation was planned not only before you existed, but before the earth you now sit upon even existed. God's word could not be more clear of this one simple fact that God is not asking you to determine your own salvation. Which raises the question, then what in the world is our text about? Turn back to Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And James Montgomery Boyce puts this better than, than I could. It says this, The verse does not say, work for your salvation or work towards your salvation or to work at your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Listen to this. And no one can work his salvation out unless God has already worked it in. Did you catch that distinction? We are not working for redemption. Rather, we are working from redemption. We are not working from a need for salvation, but working because we have salvation. And that's a significant distinction. That's the difference between a works-based salvation and a grace-based obedience. And this is the very same thing we see Jesus saying in the Gospel of John. In John 6, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what's often called election. And on the other hand, Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's outward evidence of faith. You remember when we studied the Great Commission last summer. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says these now famous words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And part of that commission was this instruction towards obedience. The very next verse in Matthew 28 says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when we see this phrase, work out your own salvation, you need to know it's the outflow of an existing salvation, not the creation of a non-existent salvation. You know how I like to point plurals out to you. We have that here in this text. Literally, it'd be work out all y'all's own salvation. And I just pointed out because I want you to understand that this is indeed a command to us both as individuals and collectively to live the gospel that we have believed. 
Yet, given the context of, of the unity here that God has been pointing us to in this chapter, we can know that this is primarily a, a corporate command. It's a call to them as a church to live the gospel that they have believed. Because when we get down to the heart of it, we really only believe the doctrines which we live out. And so how do we live the gospel as it's designed to be lived? Galatians 5.13 gives us a picture of this. In Galatians 5.13 it says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Salvation is designed to give us freedom to live for the glory of God. But sometimes we use the gospel to justify doing whatever it is we want to do. We, we know that what God desires of us. We know that he wants us unified and considering others as more important than ourselves. We, we know that he desires to, us to abstain from worldly lust and to be quick to forgive others and to do many other things that are for our good and for his glory. It's like we know that the Bible says we should do this. But we don't care. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's a concern for the church in Philippi here. How do they work out their salvation in the context of personal hurts and natural disunity that is sure to arise? And the answer is that they are to put into practice what they believe in the power of Christ. They should be quick to forgive because their Savior has been quick to forgive them. They are to really consider others as more important than themselves because that's how Jesus has treated them when he went to the cross. They are to humble themselves, becoming obedient to God, just as Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father. We are told that this salvation which God has worked into us is to be worked out. And the way that the text puts this is in, with fear and trembling. In the Gospel of, of Mark, we, we see what fear and trembling looks like. And there's this huge crowd that's following Jesus. And among the crowd is this woman who has suffered with a discharge of blood for 12 years. We learn that she's been in pain, that she's been to see every doctor she can find, that she's spent all of her money, and she's heard about this person, Jesus, and all the amazing things he can do. And so she thinks if she can just get to him and just touch him, she might be healed. And so she gets so close to him that, that eventually she reaches out and she, she touches his clothing. And immediately the woman is healed. Jesus knows what's happening and he stops everything. And he asks this question, who touched my garments? Can you imagine the fear this woman felt at that moment? That feeling of, of seeing this amazing power in, in Jesus heal her. And at the same time, that feeling of being busted because maybe she used this without permission. I, I just can imagine the fear that went through this woman. That feeling that she might be in great trouble. And in Mark 5, as this story goes on, we, we read this. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So we always try to write off what it means to fear God. We turn it into some sense of awe of, of what it must be like when we see the sun or when we look up in the sky and we see all the stars. And then you see it in this use. This woman wasn't in awe like she feels when she sees the sunset. She was in fear. Like you feel when you feel your life is in grave danger. 
C.S. Lewis nailed this with the, the image and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That story, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story, and he's also this humongous lion. And the children asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. They asked him this question, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? you who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The fear we come to God with is real. And the trembling should be too. That's why in Matthew 10, 28, we're told not to fear man, but to rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's a very real fear, but he's good. Have you ever realized who it is we're being saved from? I think we tend to think it's Satan, but it's not Satan. Satan can't do any more than what God permits him to do. We're being saved from God. And that's what's so amazing by grace that we've received in the gospel. Our, our sin makes us unable to be in the presence of God who is perfectly holy. So, so Jesus takes the sin of his people upon himself and he dies in your place. And it's not fair. It's not fair that he should die in our place. It's not fair that we should be made holy. And yet still be such active sinners. It's not fair, but that's the love of Christ for you in the gospel. God is not safe, but he is good. This call in verse 12 to work out our own salvation sounds at first like it's up for us to work hard and produce fruit in our own power. Even Paul seems to see it that way. It's, it sounds like that. And, and so he gives us this real picture of what's actually going on in verse 13. He writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what are we called to do in the first verse? In verse 12, we're called to work out our salvation in real life. And in verse 13, we see who is actually doing that work. God. Best illustration I ever heard of this compares it to chopping down a, a big tree. Say I, I tell you to go down and I, and I want you to cut down one of those giant sequoia trees that are out in California. Uh, those really big ones. They're, they're 30 feet across, which is about from that wall to that wall. Not, not around, across. Huge trees, 300 feet tall. Uh, let's say I send you out there and you're barehanded and I say, go cut down that tree. You come back with a, a broken hand. Say I gave you a fairly sharp knife and I tell you, go cut down that same tree. Can you do it? Probably not. No. Now I give you a, a machete and you're thinking, all right, we're getting somewhere. Are you able to cut down this huge tree? No. An axe? You might get hopeful. You might get out there and make a mark on it, but no. A tree this size, you're not going to be able to cut down. Now let's say I give you a humongous chainsaw. Huge chainsaw. Can you do it then? If the chainsaw is big enough, yeah, you can. But what's different about the chainsaw from all the other items? The difference is that the power of the chainsaw is not in you. So using a chainsaw would take your effort, but it would not use your power. That's what we have in the gospel working out in our lives. Our ability to consider others takes our effort. But it's not done in our power. It's done in the power of Christ. The effort is why 
when we are in the battle with some difficult sin, we don't just sit back and wait for God to take away that sinful desire. We can't just say, take away my desire for lust and you know, I'll quit. Or take away my desire for, for gossip and you know, I'll stop. We engage in the battle against lust and gossip knowing that it's going to take our effort, but that the power of God is what will actually defeat this. John Piper in his book, When I Don't Desire God, puts it this way. He says, God's work in us does not eliminate our work. It enables it. We work because he is the one at work within us. And the beauty of the gospel is that we never battle alone. God is always with us. When we looked at the Great Commission earlier, the last thing that Jesus says to them is what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Even in Haggai 2.4, God speaks through his prophet to the people and he tells them, Be strong, all you people to land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. This command to work is built up with God's promise to be with us. And this is seen all over scripture. I'll give you just a few more. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us. God is the power that is at work within us. Philippians 1.6, which we looked at earlier this year. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I think too often we look at the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross as this merely looking forward of our place with Christ in all of eternity. We forget that our salvation also has this solid nowness to it. We forget that we have been freed from enslavement to lust, to, to people pleasing, to anger, to drunkenness, to sexual sins of all sorts, freed from selfishness. The desire for, for unity among the church in Philippi is what, what Paul is pushing them towards. How do you work out your salvation in the context of the church? One example that Paul pointed us to early in verse 3 was was how we consider others as more significant than ourselves. One reason is that doing so makes the gospel tangible. It's like a, a kite in the wind. I can't see the wind, but I can see the evidence of the wind when I see a kite flying in it. I, I can't see your faith, but I can see the evidence of your faith when I look on. I can see when you consider others as more important than yourself. And, and I can see it because that's only sustainable for a long period of time when it's God working in you. Sometimes God's will is not spelled out as clearly in his word as we desire it to be. Questions like, should I pursue a relationship with this boy or this girl? Should we buy this house or not? But what we're talking about here, what we're seeing here are those things which are very clearly the will of God for you. Things like Ephesians 4.32, which tells us how to interact with each other. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 is a, a command to treat people in a particular way, kindly. Uh, it's a call to forgive others from a particular motivation, because Christ has forgiven you. It's a command for us to do so with a particular disposition, that is, tender-heartedly. That's a call to your effort, and then and a call that cannot be accomplished apart from the power of God who works mightily in our lives. Now, if I'm honest, I, I worry that this might sound like a heavy yoke. 
If it does, I've either misrepresented how God works in you or, I've, or you've misunderstood how God works in you. Feeling the same tension, Alec Motyer made a statement regarding how rest and activity are to relate to each other in the gospel, uh, within a gospel framework. He says this, The Christian life, growing in the likeness of Christ, is a blend of rest and activity. Not alternating from one to the other, but a blend in which at one and the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently on what God is doing within and actively pursuing the responsibility of being blameless. The last thing I want you to take notice of here in this, is this phrase that our, our text ends in. It says, for his good pleasure. God's work of sanctification is, is ultimately for his good pleasure. And this tells us something of the joy that God has in seeing us grow in our faith. And this certainly raises the question for us, is the pleasure of God a driving factor in my life? Does what gives God pleasure encourage me to keep fighting? Because we live in this culture who has who's figured out, really, that doing things because it makes other humans happy is poor motivation. If I want to lose weight, I'm told I need to do it for myself and not for anyone else, Right? Uh, if I want to get a degree in medicine, it needs to be because I desire that, not because my parents desire that for me. If we're to get up and try to look attractive for the day, the motivation ought to be that it makes me happy, not that it makes others happy, right? Those ideas are half right. It would be people-pleasing to lose weight so that people would like me, or to get a degree to make your parents happy, or even to try to be attractive so that people will be attracted to you. Uh, but I fear sometimes we bring this into our theology. And we forget that God-pleasing is not people-pleasing. It is God-pleasing. And God-pleasing is right. Not to earn God's love, but to give Him pleasure. It's right to be motivated to, to fight against the act of looking at pornography by a desire to please our God who is in heaven. And it's right to be motivated to fight against the practice of gossip by a desire to please our God who is in heaven. And in the context of our text, it is right to be motivated to seek unity because it gives God pleasure to see us dwell in unity. So put effort into unity. Effort into kindness, into to showing patience. Put effort into our, to, to being quick to forgive others. Effort into considering others as more important than yourselves as we've seen in this chapter. An effort into obeying all that God has revealed in His Scripture. But as you put forth effort, know that it is God's power and not your effort that accomplishes any success. Know that so that God receives the glory and the pleasure of our growth in grace.